This is Classic Lutheran Preaching on KNNA LP 95.7, Lincoln, Nebraska. This is Pastor John Schmidt with an edited reading of Martin Luther's first sermon for Christmas. The text is from the John Nicholas Linker collection published in 1905. The scripture text for our sermon is Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 14. Now it came to pass in those days there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled. This was the first enrollment made when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to enroll themselves, every one to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, to enroll himself with Mary, who was betrothed to him, being great with child. And it came to pass while they were there, the days were fulfilled that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds in the same country, abiding in the field and keeping watch by night over their flock. And an angel of the Lord stood by them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Be not afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all the people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this is the sign unto you, you shall find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men in whom he is well pleased. Thus far our text. It is written in the prophet Haggai chapter 2 that God says, I will shake the heavens and the precious things of all nations shall come. This is fulfilled today, for the heavens were shaken. That is, the angels in the heavens sang praises to God, and the earth was shaken. That is, the people on the earth were agitated, one journeying to this city, another to that, throughout the whole land, as the gospel tells us. It was not a violent, bloody uprising, but rather a peaceable one, awakened by God, who is the God of peace. It is not to be understood that all countries upon earth were so agitated, but only those under Roman rule, which did not comprise half of the whole earth. However, no land was agitated as was the land of Judea, which had been divided among the tribes of Israel, although at this time the land was inhabited mostly by the race of Judah, as the ten tribes led captive into Assyria never returned. Observe how exact the evangelist is in his statement that the birth of Christ occurred in the time of Caesar Augustus and when Quirinius was governor of Syria, of which the land of Judea was a part, just as Austria is a part of the German land. This being the very first taxing, it appears that this tribute was never before paid until just at the time when Christ was to be born. By this, Jesus shows that his kingdom was not to be of an earthly character, nor to exercise worldly power and lordship, but that he, together with his parents, is subject to the powers that be. This gospel is so clear that it requires very little explanation, but it should be well considered and taken deeply to heart, and no one will receive more benefit from it than those who, with a calm, quiet heart, banish everything else from their mind and diligently look into it. It is just as the sun, which is reflected in calm water and gives out vigorous warmth, 
but which cannot be so easily and readily seen, nor can it give out such warmth in water that is roaring in rapid motion. First, behold how very ordinary and common things are to us that transpire on earth, and yet how high they are regarded in heaven. On earth it occurs in this wise. Here is a poor young woman, Mary of Nazareth, not highly esteemed, but of the humblest citizens of the village. No one is conscious of the great wonders she bears. She is silent, keeps her own counsel, and regards herself as the lowliest in the town. She starts out with her husband Joseph. Very likely they had no servant, and he had to do the work of master and servant, and she that of mistress and maid. They were therefore obliged to leave their home unoccupied or commended to the care of others. Now they evidently owned a donkey upon which Mary rode, although the gospel does not mention it, and it is possible that she went on foot with Joseph. Imagine how she was despised at the inns and stopping places on the way, although she was worthy to ride in state in a chariot of gold. There were, no doubt, many wives and daughters of prominent men at that time, who lived in fine apartments and great splendor, while the mother of God takes a journey in midwinter under most trying circumstances. What distinctions there are in the world! It was more than a day's journey from Nazareth in Galilee to Bethlehem on the land of Judea. They had to journey either by or through Jerusalem, for Bethlehem is south of Jerusalem, while Nazareth is north. The evangelist shows how, when they arrived at Bethlehem, they were the most insignificant and despised so that they had to make way for others until they were obliged to take refuge in a stable, to share with the cattle, lodging, table, bedchamber, and bed, while many a wicked man sat at the head in the hotels and was honored as Lord. No one noticed or was conscious of what God was doing in that stable. He lets the large houses and costly apartments remain empty, lets their inhabitants eat, drink, and be merry, but this comfort and treasure are hidden from them. Oh, what a dark night this was for Bethlehem, that was not conscious of that glorious light. See how God shows that he utterly disregards what the world is, has, or desires, and furthermore that the world shows how little it knows or notices what God is, has, and does. See, this is the first picture with which Christ puts the world to shame and exposes all it does and knows. It shows that the world's greatest wisdom is foolishness. Her best actions are wrong and our greatest treasures are misfortunes. What had Bethlehem when it did not have Christ? What have they now who at that time had enough? What did Joseph and Mary lack now, although at that time they had no room to sleep comfortably? The evangelist desires to show that Joseph and Mary had to occupy a stable, because there was no room for her in the inn, in the place where the pilgrim guests normally lodged. All the guests were cared for in the inn, with room, food, and bed, except these poor people who had to creep into a stable where it was customary to house cattle. So also here Joseph and Mary had no room in the inn, but only in the stable belonging to the innkeeper, who would not have been worthy to give shelter to such a guest. They had neither money nor influence to secure a room in the inn, hence they were obliged to lodge in a stable. O world, how stupid! O man, how blind thou art! But the birth itself is still more pitiful. There was no one to take pity on this young wife who was for the first time to give birth to a child. No one to take to heart her condition that she, a stranger, did not have the least thing a mother needs in a birth night. 
There she is without any preparation, without either light or fire, alone in the darkness, without anyone offering her service as is customary for women to do at such times. Everything is in commotion in the inn. There is a swarming of guests from all parts of the country. No one thinks of this poor woman. It is also possible that she did not expect the event so soon, else she would probably have remained at Nazareth. Just imagine what kind of swaddling clothes they were in which she wrapped the child, possibly her veil or some article of her clothing she could spare, but that she should have wrapped him in Joseph's trousers, which are exhibited at Isla Chapelle, appears entirely too false and frivolous. It is a fable, the like of which there are more in the world. Is it not strange that the birth of Christ occurs in cold winter, in a strange land, and in such a poor and despicable manner? Some argue as to how this birth took place, as if Jesus were born while Mary was praying and rejoicing, without any pain and before she was conscious of it. While I do not altogether disregard that pious supposition, it was evidently invented for the sake of simple-minded people. But we must abide by the gospel, that he was born of the Virgin Mary. There is no deception here, for the word clearly states that it was an actual birth. It is well known what is meant by giving birth. Mary's experience was not different from that of other women, so that the birth of Christ was a real natural birth, Mary being his natural mother and he being her natural son. Therefore her body performed its function of giving birth, which naturally belonged to it, except that she brought forth without sin, without shame, without pain, and without injury, just as she had conceived without sin. Grace does not interfere with nature and her work, but rather improves and promotes it. Likewise, Mary, without doubt, also nourished the child with milk from her breast, and not with strange milk, or in a manner different from that which nature provided. I mention this, that we may be grounded in the faith and know that Jesus was a natural man in every respect, just as we, the only difference being in his relation to sin and grace, he being without a sinful nature. In him and in his mother, nature was pure in all the members and in all the operations of those members. No body or member of woman ever performed its natural function without sin, except that of this virgin. Here for once God bestowed special honor upon nature and its operation. It is a great comfort to us that Jesus took upon himself our nature and flesh. Therefore we are not to take away from him or his mother anything that is not in conflict with grace. For the text clearly says that she brought him forth, and the angel said, Unto you he is born. How could God have shown his goodness in a more sublime manner than by humbling himself to partake of flesh and blood, that he did not even disdain the natural privacy, but honors nature most highly in that part where, in Adam and Eve, it was most miserably brought to shame, so that henceforth even that can be regarded godly, honest, and pure, which in all men is the most ungodly, shameful, and impure. These are real miracles of God, for in no way could he have given us stronger, more forcible, and purer pictures of chastity than in this birth. When we look at this birth and reflect upon how the sublime majesty moves with great earnestness and inexpressible love and goodness upon the flesh and blood of this virgin, we see how here all evil lust and every evil thought is banished. No woman can inspire such pure thoughts in a man as this virgin, nor can any man inspire such pure thought in a woman as this child. 
If, in reflecting on this birth, we recognize the work of God that is embodied in it, only chastity and purity spring from it. But what happens in heaven concerning this birth? As much as it is despised on earth, so much in a thousand times more it is honored in heaven. If an angel from heaven came and praised you and your work, would you not regard it of greater value than all the praise and honor the world could give you, and for which you would be willing to bear the greatest humility and reproach? What exalted honor is that when all the angels in heaven cannot restrain themselves from breaking out and rejoicing, so that even poor shepherds in the fields hear them preach, praise God, sing, and pour out their joy without measure? Were not all joy and honor realized at Bethlehem, yes, all joy and honor experienced by all the kings and nobles on earth, to be regarded as only dross and abomination, of which no one likes to think when compared with the joy and glory here displayed? Behold how very richly God honors those who are despised of men, and that very gladly. Here you see that his eyes look into the depths of humility, as it is written, he sits above the cherubim and looks into the depths. Nor could the angels find princes or valiant men to whom to communicate the good news, but only unlearned laymen, the most humble people on earth. Could they not have addressed the high priests, who, it was supposed, knew so much concerning God and the angels? No, God chose poor shepherds, who, though they were of low esteem in the sight of men, were in heaven regarded as worthy of such great grace and honor. See how utterly God overthrows that which is lofty. And yet we rage and rant for nothing but this empty honor, as we had no honor to seek in heaven. We continually step out of God's sight, so that he may not see us in the depths into which he alone looks. This has been considered sufficiently for plain people. Everyone should ponder it further for himself. If every word is properly grasped, it is as fire that sets the heart aglow, as God says in Jeremiah 23. Is not my word like fire? And as we see, it is the purpose of the divine word to teach us to know God and his work and to see that this life is nothing. For as he does not live according to this life and does not have possessions nor temporal honor and power, he does not regard these and says nothing concerning them, but teaches only the contrary. He works in opposition to these temporal things, but looks with favor upon that from which the world turns teaching that from which it flees and takes up that which it discards. And although we are not willing to tolerate such acts of God and do not want to receive blessing, honor, and life in this way, yet it must remain so. God does not change his purpose, nor does he teach or act differently than he purposed. We must adapt ourselves to him. He will not adapt himself to us. Moreover, he who will not regard his word nor the manner in which he works to bring comfort to men has assuredly no good evidence of being saved. In what more lovely manner could he have shown his grace to the humble and despised of earth than through this birth in poverty, over which the angels rejoice and make it known to no one but to the poor shepherds? But the angels show most clearly that nothing is to be preached in Christendom except the gospel. He takes upon himself the office of preacher of the gospel. He does not say, I preach to you, but glad tidings I bring to you. I am an evangelist, and my word is an evangel, that is, good news. The meaning of the word gospel is a good, joyful message, that is, preached in the New Testament. Of what does the gospel testify? 
Listen, the angel says, I bring you glad tidings of great joy. My gospel speaks of great joy. Where is it? Here again. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Behold here what the gospel is, namely a joyful sermon concerning Christ our Savior. Whoever preaches him rightly preaches the gospel of pure joy. How is it possible for man to hear of greater joy than that Christ has given to him as his own? He does not only say Christ is born, but he makes his birth our own by saying, To you is born a Savior. Therefore the gospel does not only teach the history concerning Christ, but it enables all who believe it to receive it as their own, which is the way the gospel operates, as has just been set forth. Of what benefit would it be to me if Christ had been born a thousand times, and it would daily be sung into my ears in a most lovely manner, if I were never to hear that he was born for me and was to be my very own? And so we properly consider this gracious event, and we take it to heart. Amen. to K-N-N-A-L-P 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska.